Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. Today, we'll be discussing Stephen King's second novel, 1975's small town tale of vampirism, Salem's Lot. If you had tuned into the first week's podcast in which I covered Carrie, I discussed how I discovered King with it and the subsequent binge read of every one of his then published novels. Like most of Stephen King's properties, even if I hadn't read the story by King, I was aware of it. I knew that Salem's Lot was a vampire story in a small town with the with the name of the, the book, and I had seen parts of the TV movie from the 1970s that, of course, was familiar of it through the Simpsons annual Treehouse of Terror 1993 episode. I believe I first read Salem's Lot in the fall. I don't know if I read it in the fall the first time, but I distinctly remember rereading it a few years later around Halloween. When compiling a list of Halloween books, I never really see Salem's Lot included in any list, but I strongly recommend this uh, to be read around October 31st. With the beautiful imagery of a small town under the moonlight, while menacing shadows stalk their prey through the dark woods, it is an essential read if you appreciate spooky stories to tell in the dark. This is now the third time I'm reading Salem's Lot, and I'm happy to say that I enjoyed it just as much the third time around as I did the first two. So, before we get into our review, I'm going to take a few moments to read the Wikipedia summary. Salem's Lot is a 1975 horror fiction novel written by the American author Stephen King. It was his second published novel. The story involves a writer named Ben Mears who returns to the lot where he lived as a boy between the ages of 9 through 13 in Maine to discover that the residents are all becoming vampires. The town would be a location that would be revisited in the short stories Jerusalem Lot and One for the Road, both from King's 1978 short story collection Night Shift. The novel was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 1976, and in 1987 it was nominated for the Locust Award as the all-time best fantasy novel. Ben Mears, a writer who grew up in Jerusalem's lot, Maine, has returned home after 25 years. He quickly becomes friends with the high school teacher Matt Burke and strikes up a passionate romantic relationship with Susan Norton, a young college graduate. Ben starts writing a book about the Marston House, an abandoned house where he had a bad experience as a child. Mears learns that the Marston House, the former home of Depression-era hitman Hubie Hubert Marston, has been purchased by Kurt Barlow, an Austrian immigrant who has arrived in the lot ostensibly to open a store. Barlow is on extended buying trip. Only his business partner, Richard Straker, is seen in public. The duo's arrival coincides with the disappearance of a young boy, Ralphie Glick, and the death of his brother Danny, who becomes the town's first vampire, infecting such locals as Mike Ryerson, Randy McDougall, Jack Griffin, and Danny's own mother, Marjorie Glick. Danny fails, however, to infect Mark Petrie, who resists him successfully by holding up a plastic cross in front of Danny's face. Within several weeks, many of the townspeople are turned into vampires. Ben Mears and Susan are joined by Matt Burke and his local doctor, Jimmy Cody, along with young Mark Petrie and the local priest, Father Callahan, in an effort to fight the spread of new vampires. Susan is captured by Barlow before Mark has a chance to rescue her. Susan becomes a vampire and is eventually staked through the heart by Mears, the man who loved her. Mark's parents are killed next, but Barlow does not infect them, so they are later given a clean burial. Barlow holds Mark and Father Callahan hostage, but Father Callahan has the upper hand, securing Mark's release, 
agreeing to Barlow's demand that he toss aside his cross and face him on equal terms. However, he delays throwing the cross aside, and the once powerful religious symbol loses its strength until Barlow can not only approach Callahan, but breaks the cross, now nothing more than two small pieces of plaster into bits. Barlow says, sad to see a man's faith fail him. Callahan then has to drink blood from Barlow's neck. Callahan resists, but is forced to drink, leaving him in another world, as Barlow has left his mark. When Callahan tries to re-enter his church, he receives an electric shock, preventing him from going inside, and Callahan never goes near another church again. Jimmy Cody is killed when he falls from a rigged staircase and is impaled by knives set up by the one-time denizens of Eva Miller's boarding house, Mears' one-time residence. All of these characters have now become vampires. Ben Mears and Mark Petrie succeed in destroying the master vampire Barlow, but are lucky to escape with their lives and are forced to leave the town to the now leaderless vampires. The novel's prologue, which is set shortly after the end of the story proper, describes Ben and Mark's flight across the country to a seaside town in Mexico where they attempt to recover from their ordeal. Mark is received into the Catholic Church by a friendly local priest and confesses for the first time what they have experienced. The epilogue has the two returning to the town a year later, intending to renew the battle. Ben, knowing that there are too many hiding places for the vampires, deliberately starts a brush fire in the woods near the town with the intent of destroying it and the Marston house once and for all. So for the rest of the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, the characters and the effectiveness of his writing. Uh, so just for all intents and purposes, so everyone knows, the edition that I'm reading it's it's the first it's the first edition um, from 1975 um, from Doubleday and Company. Um, it's an old beat up edition that uh, my father gave to me um, that he found in the library of the the old uh, the old fire station that I used to work in. Um, so when I refer to page numbers, it's from this particular edition that, that I'm reading. But to start us off, what I would like to do while uh, Carrie is still so fresh in my mind, I want to talk about some, some leftovers that, uh, that I've found um, from, from Carrie into Salem's Lot because I, I think that when reading his novels chronologically, you can start to spot the themes and ideas that he passes off to himself from one book to the next like a... Um, relay baton. Uh, so just like in Carrie, in Salem's Lot, he inserts news articles and journal entries into the narrative as seen on page five. Um, and later in the book with Ben's journal, he also includes a doctor's report on page 106. So while not as prevalent as it was in Carrie, it's definitely something that he still likes to play with um, or else he, he wouldn't have done it. Um, and furthermore, just like we have in Carrie, we, we have another telepathically linked death. So in his first book, we saw that Sue Snell and Carrie White were linked telepathically at the end, just as Carrie died. And due to the telepathic connection, Sue experienced Carrie's death. Uh, something similar happens here um, on pages 113 and 114 
when Manella Corey describes the moment of her sister's death at the hands of Hubert Marston. Um, it's similar in concept, but in Salem's Lot, King reworks this idea uh, for a more horrifying and unsettling effect. Um, so basically, he's he's really trying to to increase the the feeling of of dread and terror, and he's building this great tone. So it, it it's not so much a moment where two characters are understanding each other as it's presented in Carrie. It's it's presented as a ghost story here, and it's incredibly effective. Um. And then the last thing that, that I found, I'm sorry, not the last, um, but uh, one more thing that, that I found uh, between Carrie and Salem's Lot was uh, another mother-daughter relationship. So on page 29 to 32, we're introduced to Susan's mother, and there's conflict, uh, much like the, the, the previous novel, but it's a much, much more natural, relatable, and healthy conflict. Um, at first, Mrs. Norton is very patient and loving and, and very doting, uh, a little pushy, but it all comes from a place of love, not hate, not like, not like Margaret. So Mrs. Norton's going to go a bit further in the novel. She's going to step out of this um, doting place, and it's going uh, to become offensive, her actions, but definitely compared to Margaret White, she deserves uh, a Mother of the Year award. And last but not least, one carryover that I found uh, is that of the bully. So on page 52, we are introduced to Richie Bodden, the schoolyard bully who targets the new kid, Mark Petrie. In a surprising and incredibly satisfying turn of events, the potential victim utterly defeats and humiliates our bully, almost as if King is imposing karmic retribution on the bully archetype established in his breakout novel. So those are just some some aspects of, of Carrie that I found um, had infiltrated Salem's Lot. So let's take a few moments to talk about the, the tone of this novel. Um, so although Carrie might have been his first novel, uh, this is his, uh, the first novel in the genre that he's going to be synonymous with for the entirety of his career. Because unlike Carrie, which was a science fiction story, Salem's Lot is a gothic ghost story filled with Halloween-rich imagery and scenes that cause genuine fright. This is a perfect story to be read late at night. I believe that the reason Carrie was so successful was due to its premise. Uh, it's a premise that, that just sells itself. I mean, think about it. Super-powered girl gets revenge on her bullies. Um, I mean, that's what we call an elevator pitch. Um, and it's, uh, this is not to say that there wasn't any talent in his writing in Carrie. Uh, there certainly is. I mean, King is definitely on display, but, um, but I, I think that the, that novel, the popular, that novel spread due to the power of, of the concept of the novel. Now, Salem's Lot, King doesn't have quite a, uh, quite a concept, uh, which isn't to take anything away from Salem's Lot, but um, at the time, as I had said in, in the, the Carey uh, review, at the time, superpowers were not in, so it was, it was, very, it was a very novel novel, whereas in Salem's Lot, uh, vampires have been done before. Vampires certainly were, were not what they are today. Um, but I mean, this is, you know, coming, you know, around the era, I mean, of the, the Hammer films and, you know, certainly we have the image of Bela Lugosi, um, Bram Stoker is, is a household name. So, I mean, that the, the image and all the connotations of vampires were there, um, 
But what Stephen King does with Salem's Lot, he, he, he takes it and he places the Dracula story in the small towns of which he was so familiar and masterfully creates a sense of growing dread that becomes a character in its own right. So nothing against Carrie, but this is, I would say, the beginning of Stephen King. This is Stephen King, um, the master of horror's first novel. And I think that if uh, Salem's Lot had come out first instead of Carrie, it would have been just as successful for him. Um, he did not get lucky with Carrie. I, I think that if, if Salem's Lot had come out first, people wouldn't be talking about the premise um, so much as they were talking, they would be talking about how powerful the writing in this novel is. Because as I'm going to get into in a little bit, Salem's Lot, the town, uh, really comes to life, and you feel as though you are living there. So when the character starts to turn, and you know, uh, you start to the, the characters start to get an impression that something is off because of the the growing dread that's so palpable on the page. You feel it because you feel as though you're living in this town and you have a history of the town. Um, and really, King's King's strengths as a writer are, are very very much on display in this novel. Um, and all of this would not have worked had he not been able to build up the threat of the Marston House. How, uh, how it just perches over the town like a monster, a dark idol, it's called. He, he gives it a history. It's, it's a shadow from which they cannot escape. From the first emergence of Barlow to a fatal walk through the woods, from the disorientation of a gravedigger under the sway of the vampire in the coffin below, um, from every appearance of the victims turned vampires to the harrowing conclusion, this is a book that will cause goosebumps start to finish. The tone, like I said, is so palpable. The dread, uh, the tension is very much on display. This is a, as I said earlier, this is a book definitely to be read around Halloween. But with that said, it's not just like, just like Carrie. This is not serious with a capital S. Um, King understands that with life, there are different flavors of life and that even in the, the darkest, um, you know, most dread-filled moments, there's humor to be had, uh, you know, and, and just when you think that you can't take it anymore, King incorporates a little bit of humor just to lighten the mood because he understands that you are sitting down to read something that he is giving to you and it shouldn't be a chore. Yes, he wants to invoke, you know, a, a feeling of fear, you know, he, he wants you to, to look in the corners of, of your dark room. He wants you to be a little afraid that there's something, you know, under your bed. But he also wants you to have a good time because he had a good time um, writing it at times. I know at times he, he also thought it was a chore. And as you'll see with Cujo, he doesn't remember writing that one at all. But, uh, but you know, there's definitely humor to be had. You know, for instance, when we first meet Father Callahan and... Uh, he is at his um, desk and he's drinking and he's reminiscing on how he's he, he wants to write a novel um, about uh, New England churches and Christianity in New England. And he's basically, he procrastinates the entire time because all he does is write notes and you know, King writes, in the beginning there was scotch, and Father Callahan said, let there be notes. You know, it, it, it shows that King has a humor. It shows that Father Callahan has a humor. He understands that, you know, he's he's an alcoholic, but uh, 
he he doesn't loathe himself um, because of it. And uh, you know, King he does a good job at at just making us stop every now and then and then think about what it would be like in real life if we encountered the characters in his books. And that happens towards the end of the novel when things are just going out of control. The town is falling apart, vampires are running wild, and our ragtag collection of characters um, you know, uh, ha- have their backs up against it. It's not looking good for them. So just imagine interacting with these characters because that's what happens to the florist on page 314 when the gang has discovered that Straker has bought up all of the roses. And King writes, The proprietor stared after them, three men, one of them a priest, and a little boy who sat in a car with uh, MD plates and shouted at each other of total lunacies. So I can just picture watching this car filled with um, two... Three men and a boy. One of the men is a priest. Uh, one of the the, the 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 other men is a uh, is a doctor, and, and the three and everyone's just shouting at each other. How ridiculous that that looks! And I like how Stephen King understands that there is a ridiculousness, and he celebrates it. And I think the fact that he does take the time to celebrate it um, shows that we can we can have fun with the with the story. So let's talk about some of the characters, uh, starting with Ben. Ben is our protagonist, um, and in, in our very first introduction with him, um, from pages 13 to 17, it tells us everything we need to know about him. Uh, he's returning home to, uh, to Salem's Lot. He's afraid of the Marston house. He is a writer. Um, and then, uh, in a little bit of a problematic fashion, King discusses that he, he lost his wife and then immediately on page 19 while while it's fresh in our minds that he has lost his wife he starts hitting on a girl in the park whom he describes as being the prettiest girl in the park and I understand that King thought it was necessary for him to have a tragic backstory and I get that but at the same time I I, I think that there 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 can be a, a little bit of a um delay in the information that we get um, by putting it up front and immediately having him fall in love with someone and setting up the love interest it, it just makes me as a reader question his his faithfulness to his deceased wife now I'm not saying that he needs to uh, to live a celibate life for the rest of his life but um, just for me my own reader's reaction was, was that I, I kind of liked him less for for going after um, the, the prettiest girl who, who we all know is Susan um, right after the fact that was established that his, that his wife was dead. Um, so Ben is an intellect, but he can hang with the blue-collar folk. Uh, he's proactive. He's heroic in a quiet sort of way as evidenced by looking for the Glick boy. Um, he takes it into his own hands, um, you know, and joins up with Matt, his mentor figure, um, and, and, and Jimmy and Susan and Mark to combat the vampire threat. Uh, once in Mexico, he decides to return uh, to, to end the, the vampire threat once and for all. So, I mean, he has a lot of heroic qualities, um, you know, which is great. Uh, you know, you, you can tell he's haunted 
um, throughout the entire the entire story as if he never made it out of the Marston house as a boy because that that's one of the backstories that that we get is when he was in the Marston house as a boy he he was he was dared to go up there and um, he he discovered the the ghost of the previous owner um, hanging from the rafters and he swears that it was a ghost and and not a hallucination. Um, so, like, like I said earlier, this, this is a supernatural novel. Unlike Carrie, which was sci-fi, this is supernatural, and King deals so well with the supernatural. Um, so another thing about Ben is that uh, through Ben that I find interesting here is that King begins an argument against style of thought found within college courses, um, the kind of which both he and Ben um, had attended it uh, manifests itself with a disdain for stylistic literary expectations where writers are um, expected to imbue everything with meaning and the belief that a lack of meaning equals a poor excuse in literature. In the novel It, Bill Denbro will argue with his college professor and ask a very valid question that why can't a story just be a story? With, um, with Matt, uh, Burke, and, um, and Ben, uh, the two of them bond over their love of learning and their weariness of the institution of learning. Um, and it's, it's definitely something that Stephen King feels, and it's, it's creeping in into his character here. So when it comes to Ben, his experience with the, the Marston house um, and his belief in its existence as a beacon for evil allows for him to assist Matt when uh, Mike Ryerson... Um, is turned now. If if Ben had not experienced that supernatural aspect of the Marston House when he was a child, I don't know if he would have been so readily um, gung ho about joining up to 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 slay vampires. But he had experienced something that he could not explain, and it it, it allowed for him to to be that much more open to uh, to to what Matt you know says about about the vampires. I'm not, I'm not going to talk too much more about Ben. Um, I, as a character, he is, uh, and he's kind of thin. You know, he has he has the backstory of having uh, originally been from Salem's Lot. Um, through him, we we get a great deal of the backstory of the Marston House. But um, you know, other than that, he's he's kind of a cipher. Uh, he, he's he's a good guy. Um, he he's not really deep. He's a writer. He, uh, he he loves the girl. Unfortunately, at the end, he has to drive a stake through her heart. Um, you know, he, uh, he he partners up with the old man and the boy, and he ultimately saves the day. So in terms of complex characters, Ben is not a complex character. He is our protagonist. Um, he is serviceable, but he doesn't make or break the, the, the story. Um, I think that you could have swapped him out with another character and it would have been just as effective. There, there are, <clears throat> there are other characters in the novel that really come to life that, that could have been, uh, the substitution for, for Ben that I think would have worked. I think that Matt is a very strong character. I think Father Callahan is a very strong character, um, that, 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 both serve very well as those supporting characters, um, but Ben is is just kind of he's kind of there, um, and you know he gets along well with others because he kind of just is like everybody else. I think that if they took the the Jimmy Cody character, the Doctor, and 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 put him instead of Ben, the the narrative would have been exactly the same. 
And up next, we have uh, the second character that, that we meet, if you want to call this character a character at all, which I think tells you how I, I, I feel, but, uh, and that's Susan. <clears throat> uh, so on page 18 through 19, we are introduced to her, but I would argue that we're not introduced to a character. We are introduced to a plot device that immediately uh, is designed to give us information um, about Ben's novel and Ben. So right away, she is defined by her appreciation uh, of the protagonist. To me, this is this is not off to a good start. In fact, I find it very problematic. Um, she's being introduced to us um, as being defined by her fandom for Ben. So right away, she doesn't function as her own character. She functions as an extension of the male character, the protagonist. Um, and Stephen King is going to later in his career have a string of female-centered characters and books. And he, he, he does a really good job at, at just the, the female character, but, uh, but not, not here, not in Salem's lot. Uh, and he, he did so in his previous novel. I, I think that, that Carrie, uh, um, is an incredibly strong, complex character, uh, but, but not Susan. <clears throat> so on page 25, um, we have a conflict established, um, because it's, it's hinted that, that she's in a relationship with someone else. So again, she's now defined not necessarily by one person, um, Ben, but someone else now, Floyd. So all of a sudden we have this, this romantic, uh, triangle that, that I, I don't think serves the story. I think that it, it severely hurts Susan. Um, and then by the time page 30 rolls around, I started to question whether or not my, my criticism was being addressed by, by Stephen King. Um, because this is a scene between uh, Susan and her mother, and they begin to to argue about her future and what she's going to do. And um, Susan, just at that point, for someone that you know she had just graduated college and and she she's ready to you know tackle the world in this scene, she seems so young. Um, and I don't know if that really speaks to. Uh, you know who she is as a character. If there's a little bit of a, a contradiction, an intentional contradiction on Stephen King's part between you know the the woman she wants to be and the girl she currently is, if that's intentional, then bravo, Stephen King, bravo. I think that that's a, a great job. If it's unintentional, I think that it 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 hurts the character because she still has this vestigial "oh mom" sort of relationship where she just is is so frustrated with her mother and. You know, she, she, I don't want to say she throws a temper tantrum, but, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's one step removed from that. Um, and then while Ben goes off uh, to be a, a proactive character, she then, um, when, when he comes back, she's cooking after him and all the other males are talking about what a great, you know, um, you know, attribute that is and what a lucky guy he is and, you know, is she trying to, is she perpetuating outdated stereotypes or is she a character trying to break out of stereotypes pressed upon her by a town that's just a little bit, a little bit behind the times? If it's the latter, then it gives the town even more shading than it currently has. But if it's the former, to me, it's, it's weak character work. Um, 
on page 183, uh, you know, we, we get a little bit of her thoughts and she wants to say, I love you to Ben. Um, and at that time I'm reading it, I asked why. I, I, I just, I don't feel as though that moment is very earned. Uh, I mean, what have we seen from this relationship? You know, he's a slightly famous outsider with roots in the town and, and she just happens to be a fan of his. He's taken her out to eat. Um, they've had dinner. Um, you know, he's come over for the family, but what give and take has occurred? Um, you know, so again, uh, is this just unearned characterization or is King revealing that she's emotionally younger than she thinks she is? And then, then, then Susan goes and, and, and does it. Um, it just made me go, really, Susan, really? You decide it's for the best for you to go to the Marston house by yourself. Okay, what she does here, this is the, the literary equivalent of screaming at the movie screen for the character to not go down the stairs. And I acknowledge the hypocrisy of my statement, all right? Uh, full, out of the way, uh, I'm going to get this out of the way, I, I acknowledge this. I'm going to call her out for being idiotic, for her going to the Marston house, but I'm also going to say that, that Mark Petrie is also very brave for doing the exact same thing. Um, but I would argue that Mark, uh, who is also joined to the Marston house alone, um, is brave because he's a child, first of all, and unlike Susan, he does not have a group to rely on. For all Mark knows, he is the only one in town who is aware of the vampires. So that that's that's really all I have for Susan. You know, I mean, she she'll team up with Mark. Um, she will be turned into a vampire, and Ben will have to to stake her um, in the heart, and and that will be the the, the story of Susan. Um, Ben will go on. Um, I don't know. Maybe he's going to move to another town. He'll think about her for a second, then then meet the, the the prettiest girl in the park of the town he happens to be in, and and the cycle will repeat itself. But you know, it's too bad. I she seemed like a very nice character. Don't get me wrong, but in terms of adding to the plot, I don't feel as though she does anything. I think her actions um, are felt through her male counterparts, and her death spurns been into action so she's she's the the damsel in distress what it comes down to and stephen king will later go on to prove that he can write you know female characters you know having legs of their own having thoughts of their own uh being strong you know female characters but i i don't think that that susan fits that that mold right now but the question is whether or not that is intentional um if the if the the shadings of that character those inconsistencies and those weaknesses um, are intentional on, on the part of the, the author. So I know that when I, I covered Carrie, I, I went into detail about Sue Snell, and I kind of bashed her, and now I'm bashing Susan, so I just don't know if it's the name. But uh, just like Sue Snell, uh, you know, constant reader, please, please write in to, to share your thoughts about whether or not you think that, that Susan is a strong character, a weak character, if I'm overanalyzing it, um, or if there's something that I don't see. So another character in the town that is uh, brought to life through great description on Stephen King's part is the Marston House itself. Basically, just picture Dracula's castle looming over the town, and, and that's it in a nutshell. It's always casting a shadow. Even after Ben and Susan have a lovely milkshake and make plans, Ben's thoughts turn to the Marston house. It's always there. It's always an eyesight. And even if it is out of sight, it's in someone's mind. Um, 
pages 33 to 36, um, it gives you the background, uh, great history. You know, it just really makes you wonder what happened to the Marstons. You know, what drew this man, who was a bad man, but what drew him to that spot to build a house right there? You know, had he heard voices, you know, pulling him there? You know, were these the same voices that, that made him kill his wife? Or... Um, you know, was the house itself evil because he himself was evil? You know, where did the evil begin? Did evil call out evil? Did he, as an evil man, build the evil? You know, I think that because, you know, I, I've read the, the other works of Stephen King, I, I, I think that there's something about that spot um, that drew him and, you know, the, 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 the evilness, you know, soaked into the, the beams and the floors and, and the walls and the plaster and, and, and poisoned the house itself. But the house necessarily is not poison. It's, it's that particular location and, and something about it drew uh, Hubert Marston there. And, and just I know that he was he was a bad man. I think it made him a little bit worse, a little bit evil, um, a, a little bit more off balance and, and slightly uh, drove him insane so now that it's haunted in the minds of the town people you know the house uh it's it's the house that children use to scare each other you know so it's perfect that stephen king you know creates this small town complete with that haunted house and as i'm going to get into later in the podcast i'm going to actually differentiate here that it is not necessarily a haunted house but a trope that stephen king will use again and again and that's that of the evil house so there's a, a great moment in the in the text on on page 38 in which Ben and Susan are talking about the Marston House and specifically his experience um, at the Marston House when he was a boy. And through Ben, I believe that that King is working out uh, an ongoing philosophy he's going to have when it comes to the the idea of of haunted houses, um, and it's as follows. Probably I was so keyed up that I hallucinated the whole thing. On the other hand, there may be some truth in the idea that houses absorb the emotions that are spent in them, that they hold a kind of dry charge. Perhaps the right personality, that of an imaginative boy, for instance, could act as a catalyst on that dry charge and cause it to produce an active manifestation of, of something. I, I'm not talking about ghosts, precisely. I'm, I'm talking about a kind of psychic television in three dimensions, perhaps even something alive, a monster, if you'd like. Ultimately, uh, good will win the day. Father Callahan, in, in one of his final acts, will um, will bless the house. He will banish the, the evil from it, and uh, and that will make sure that, that Barlow cannot enter it again, so it will actually throw Barlow into, into hiding. Um, but up until then, the, the house is a great character in the novel. I'm not going to call it a setting, because it's not. It is... It is a, a dark entity within that town, a dark idol, um, as it's described by one character. Um, ben believes that it is a beacon and that evil uh, nature has drawn another evil man in the form of, of Barlow and Straker to town. So again, if King had not included the Marston house, it, uh, I don't think that Salem's Lot would be quite as effective as, as it is. It... Um, it, it, it's basically, as I said, you just you take Dracula's castle and you put it in a small town, except he, he spent the time to, to make Dracula's castle a living, breathing character. So let's talk about Matt Burke. Uh, he's, he's our mentor of, of Ben. So um, 
if you know anything about you know Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, um, as soon as he's introduced and he he meets up with Ben and they they strike a friendship and he sort of takes the the, the reins as the as the leader, um, you know that he's the mentor and therefore you know that he has to die in order for for the hero to complete his quest and, and that's exactly what happens. He has um, a rather uh, you know, the, the world doesn't end with a, a bang but a whimper moment when he dies, uh, when his heart finally just gives out in the hospital. But uh, as soon as Matt was introduced, I couldn't help but think that King had created uh, this character as an alternate reality version of himself who lives a long, happy life as an English teacher, having never published Carrie. Uh, he's savvy. He's open to possibilities most would scoff at. Um, on page 158, Matt sees Mike Ryerson at the bar. This is where we see the effect of the vampire. Um, before, King had teased it out secondhand and hid it behind the doctor's notes of the Glick Boy, but now we have one of our main characters interacting with a victim of vampirism and soon to be a vampire himself. With the introduction of Barlow at the dump, the threat comes out of the shadows and to the forefront of the narrative. Now, Matt knows that something is wrong with Mike's story, visitors at the window sleeping until dawn, and his offer for Mike to sleep at his place reveals that Matt is all at once kind for taking in a sickly former student, brave to do so as he has the suspicion that something may be preying upon him, and rational in the sense that in order to prove his suspicion, he must monitor the situation specifically, Mike himself. This leads to one of the most impressively terrifying moments in the story, that just pops off of the page it sticks with the reader and if it causes you know your nightmares then Stephen King did his job and I wouldn't be surprised if that particular chapter caused number of nightmares um to to all of the readers that read it and that scene is when Matt realizes that a vampire has come for Mike and so paralyzed with fear he cannot do anything about it now, his ability to act does not illustrate a cowardly streak within him. It only depicts how most of us would act under these circumstances. Surely, when confronted with the monsters of our youth, wouldn't we revert to the child version of ourselves? If Matt had leapt out of bed and stormed his guest room with the Bible in one hand and the crucifix in the other as he had played out in his mind, it would have rang false to me. See, those are the actions of a character in an action movie, and this is a perfect example of what makes King stand apart from other writers. His characters aren't wish-fulfillment vehicles. They're everyday representations of the characters you encounter in your everyday life. And while it's certainly cool to think of your, your old high school teacher instinctively equipped with the fortitude to slay a vampire upon first contact, it isn't necessarily realistic. And as we explored last week in Carrie, every time King presents the supernatural, he's able to ground it in a recognizable reality, which, with the contrast established, makes the supernatural elements pop that much more. If Matt had dashed into the room, the scene would have been the scene would not have been as effective due to the fact that at that point he would be one of the fantastical elements. Without the juxtaposition without the juxtaposition of the recognizable against the recognizable, the scene cannot function. So once he suffers his heart attack, Matt is taken out of physical action and proceeds to take up the role of a general uh, in his war against Barlow. And to mix metaphors, both characters begin to play chess with one another, Barlow reveling in the joy that comes from disorienting his opponents as he takes the pieces from the board one by one. And as I said, um, Matt has to die in order for Ben, our hero, to complete his quest of, of, uh, of slaying the vampire, the, the dragon, um, the, the mentor figure you know, has to die, and it's only upon his death that the, the, the end of the, the story comes when, when Ben 
the knight with his squire in tow um, is able to, to, to go to the dragon's cave and, and slay the dragon. And I really could not wait when I was uh, reading the book to actually get to this part where I, I, I can really go into to depth and talk about this particular character, this next one here, Father Callahan who uh, might be the strongest written character in the novel. And any Stephen King fan worth their salt knows that this character means a lot to Stephen King. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, everybody, um, if you have not read um, much of Stephen King, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag right now. We don't see the end of Father Callahan. So, in, in this text, he had been referenced a couple times, but we first meet him on, on page 126 and 127 with a description on 127. Um, he's introduced as a kind man with a drinking problem, um, and that kindness is shown due to the fact that at the funeral he, he of, the, of the Glick boys, he doesn't want to draw out the parents' anguish, um, but he does want to do a good job at the service and, and say something kind, um, but he doesn't want to belabor the point because he, he understands that the pain is, is, is going to be too much to bear. Now, we all know, okay, it's, it's well known that Stephen King has suffered and thankfully conquered substance abuse problems. With Father Callahan, the question is, do we see a young writer begin to publicly exercise his demons on the printed page? King will soon, very soon, explore the battle with alcoholism, more famously with the character of Jack Torrance in The Shining. But at this moment in time, are we witnessing the beginning of Stephen King's dependency on alcohol? After all, Father Callahan, King's surrogate in the novel, recalls that the alcoholism and the writing began at the same time. Now, is King confessing to the reader? By the end of the novel, at, by the end of the novel, Father Callahan heartbreakingly loses his battle of faith. Does that mean that he's representing King's own internal battle, one of dependency, where his own strength is overpowered by the lure of the bottle? More thematically, what is King saying with this character? On pages 147 to 149, he describes how the confessions of the townspeople are contributing to Callahan's withdrawal from grace and faith. Is King stating that the small, malicious evils of small-town America are overcoming the good as represented by Callahan? Or is he stating that because good has weakened, the townspeople are giving in to their worst urges? King uh, describes Father Callahan as a, a priest um, without much of a purpose. The, as I just stated, the, the, the confessions from all the townspeople just aren't doing it for him. You know, he's, he's not seeing necessarily the good in people. And, you know, he reflects upon the changes that the Catholic Church has, has gone through in the last decade or so at the time. And, you know, he, he thinks about the nature of evil. And, and in a way, he wants evil with a capital E to, to manifest itself so that um, he can combat it. So while looking at the light within the window of the Marston house, he calls for a battle against evil. And that um, call is answered um, but sadly, he will be too weak to win that battle at this time. But as I said, as I said, fear not, constant reader. This will not be the last we see of Father Callahan. Stay tuned after the podcast for more discussion on this memorable character. Um, but in the meantime, his relationship with the church paints the church in an incredibly positive light. Uh, the Catholic Church has taken a number of beatings since the publication, and regardless of anyone's religious belief, um, I believe it's powerful to see any organized religion as an official pipeline to the power of God. 
Um, and as strange as it might be to describe a priest as badass, I think it totally fits here. Just look at the scene where the gang finally makes it to the Marston house and debate how to break the door down. Callahan confidently strolls up like a boss and proceeds to command the door to open with the power of God. And under the force of his voice and the divine power supporting it, the lock breaks off in a flash of blue light. And I just wanted Father Callahan to just drop the mic and walk off stage. That would have been perfect. But unfortunately, this confidence is not strong enough to, to beat the evil when it presents itself um, in the final confrontation with him. Uh, when finally confronted with Barlow in the Petrie's kitchen, after gaining the initial advantage, he relents. And in that moment, Barlow is able to take control of the situation, turning the scene into a theological game of chicken. Both characters locked behind the wheels of their respective faiths, with the first to blink the loser. Um, except with Callahan's case, he's he's putting his soul on the line. And it's it's a, it's a horrible scene to read. It's so effective as as the blowing glue light of his cross slowly starts to fade. Um, and then just knowing that he's, he's basically just powerless against this master vampire who decides not to kill him um, or not to turn him into a vampire, but to corrupt him and taint him and, and banish him from the church and the God that he believed in and, and the God that he believes he failed. It's a truly heartbreaking scene. Um, and then Stephen King doesn't just end it there. We, we actually have a few more scenes where, where Callahan... You know, it walks the streets. He, he he tries to enter the church. He is cast back. He is cast out. He is he is not accepted by the vampires. He is, um, you know, he he knows that he's no longer human. He's he's this this strange in between creature, neither of the light nor of the dark, um, that is now cursed to 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 wander the lands. And and for someone that. Uh, had been presented as such a strong and kind character, it, it's truly um, a tragic moment in this novel. Next, I, I want to look at, at Mark here because I think that this is an incredible character. He's introduced on page 53 as a savvy kid, uh, completely unimpressed with the bully. In fact, he just looks put out that he has to put up with it. Uh, he's described as sighing um, as he takes off his glasses. Um, you know, he's not afraid of him whatsoever. He's just, his time is being wasted. Um, and, 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 and by presenting him right away as someone that's able to take out this kid that's bigger than him really goes a long way in showing, not telling, the kind of character that Mark is. He's not your typical child um, character in, in a novel. In fact, he reads like some sort of like 30-year-old in the mind or in the body of a child that I, I absolutely loved. And I didn't catch it, just how different he was, that he wasn't your typical kid. Although he, there are a lot of aspects of his childhood that I was able to relate to, specifically the, the you know, the his adoration of, of monster culture. But, uh, but I just, I read him as this little adult in the body of, of a, a kid, which I just thought was a great choice. Uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's quiet, but he's not tortured like so many introverts depicted in popular fiction. Um, you know, like I said, you know, he, he's, he's so logical and rational and so well-adjusted. It, it's, it's more the, the qualities and characteristics you would see out of an adult rather than an adolescent. There's a great description of his character on, on page 138. 
Um, you can tell from this scene that Mark, even more than our protagonist, is probably best equipped to deal with the vampire problem, <clears throat> a theme that will run throughout Stephen King's works, and that is that of the child blessed with a sense of wonder and magic uh, that gets lost in adulthood. Um, and that child is more naturally suited to combat the things that go bump in the night, uh, those things that defy the rational world occupied by adults. This will be seen outside of the works of Stephen King as well. Uh, the Lost Boys comes to mind, another vampire in the small town setting in which a group of boys, including the monster-loving Frog Brothers, are the only hopes that stand against a predatory vampire pack. Um, and Mark, as characters go, um, on page 230... Um, he is the star of what I would say is the most iconic scene from this, this story, popularized from the TV movie adaptation, in which Danny Glick finally makes it to his house, um, paying him a visit outside the window. Um, Mark knows right away what he's dealing with, uh, and he cannot be lured to his death so easily. In order to combat the temptation to look in Danny's eyes and thereby succumb to hypnosis, he repeats a phrase that will later be uttered by Bill Denbro in It for similar effect, and that phrase is as follows. He thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees the ghosts. He then grabs a crucifix, opens the window, and banishes the vampire with an accompanying supernatural flare of a glowing cross. In that moment, it reinforces again that in order for Ben and company to, ve to defeat the vampires, they will need this boy who I imagine, in an alternate world, could have been best friends with the Losers Club and two other boys by the name of Jack Sawyer and Jake Chambers. His bravery is on display when he ventures to the Marston house by himself to dispatch the vampire. When he encounters Susan, he makes short work of her adult excuses for holding a stake and cuts to the quick with impatience. You're here to kill the vampire. Oh no, she says, I just found it in the woods. I don't know what I'm doing with this. And he just cuts and he says, no, you're here to kill the vampire. Why else would you be holding a stake? So again, the reader understands that Mark is better equipped for vampire slaying than his adult counterparts. And he forces the truth from her and rationalizes what she herself could not. That it's better to do this with someone than by yourself. When Mark is captured by Barlow, Soon after, King ratchets up the tension with the tied-up boy, the setting sun, and a hungry vampire waiting below. Mark, however, is clearly up to the challenge, and with cool detachment calls upon his knowledge of Yogi Masters and Harry Houdini to escape his holds. He then knocks out and kills Barlow um, like a champ, escapes, get home. Um, unfortunately, Susan uh, does not make it. He does try to save her, but he, he knows that if he ventures into the basement, he too will die. Um, and then for the rest of the, the, the novel, he's, he's part of the group. Uh, he advises Ben on what to do, but uh, the events uh, that will happen later, specifically with the death of his parents, it will shake him, and he's not going to have too many standout moments like this. Um, and I wish... I, I wish that he, he had been a stronger presence in the novel because the scenes that, that he was in uh, certainly um, were scenes that, that shined. And I believe that, that King, you know, he's going to keep going back to the well of, of childhood characters. Um, and, and we're going to see uh, this, this, this kind of child again. But, um, but we're not going to see Mark again, which is too bad because I really did enjoy spending some time with him. And, uh, and that's all that I have for our, our heroes. Um, we can talk a little bit about our, our villains here, um, starting with Straker. Genius on Stephen King's part to introduce us to Straker first. Um, so 
you know, he imagined Salem's Lot as Dracula in a small town setting, and you can't have Dracula unless you have your Renfield. So that is the function that 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 Straker serves. He is uh, our Renfield, but he comes across as so intelligent, so urbane, um, so devilish that he keeps making reference to his partner, Mr. Barlow, and you just can't help but think as you're reading that if if this guy. All right, if 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 Straker is this bad, then how bad is his partner? Um, and you know, once the vampires start to infect the town, you, you might think that oh well, a um, you know a human character like like Barlow won't won't or Straker um, won't uh, won't make much of a difference and it won't be as frightening. But I I really beg to differ uh, because once things start hitting the fan, um, Barlow. I'm sorry, Straker is 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 still very very active. In fact, you know, there's the scene between he and Mark that is it's it's terrifying. It's very thrilling. Uh, you know, he he ties Mark up, and you know the sun is setting, and and he is the threat in that scene. You know, not not Barlow. So you know he, he's he's one of I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but he is a a great um, charismatic villain. Um, and, and just sets up the reveal of, of Barlow masterly. Um, and, and in terms of, of Barlow, if you're going to have your Dracula in a small town, well, you, you definitely need your Dracula, and he is a fantastic, fantastic Dracula to have um, because right after we get the background of him um, through the Parkins investigation, we meet him for the first time on page 143 at the town dump. Uh, much in the same way that King teased the reveal of Margaret White building up her character, letting its shadow grow in our minds, he does the same for Barlow, and he doesn't disappoint. Um, you know, I, but this is—if he's Dracula, you know—that he's a Dracula that that doesn't want to hide um, from his enemies. In fact, he 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 revels in in the conflict. Um, he he really appreciates the challenge, and and I think that it's because it's a uh, it's a break from the boredom that accumulates with his his immortality. Only one character left to, to talk about in this book, um, and that, that character happens to share the same name as the title of the novel, and that's Salem's Lot. Now, in Carrie, King had had started to dabble in, in, in making a well-lived-in town with Chamberlain, Maine, but unlike Chamberlain, Maine, um, Salem's Lot is a character in this novel. Uh, Chamberlain felt lived in, and King took the time to to establish some some background on some of the establishments, um, and he populated it with with you know secondary and tertiary characters that had enough characterization to make them feel real. But you know he he takes that that concept and he injects it with steroids. Um, and more than anything else, uh, this novel could not work if he did not establish the town. Um, as a character, uh, there's an incredible description of the town on page 26. He he will stop the narrative uh, many times throughout the text to just give us some sort of check-in with the town as a town. He will describe various elements of the town, but I I think what really establishes um, 
the, the, the town as a character and really establishes King as a force to be reckoned with as a writer takes place between pages 42 and 78. Um, in the previous two chapters, each chapter had been dedicated to a different character in the novel, the first one being Ben, the second one being Susan. This is chapter three, and in this chapter, he very clearly states that, that Salem's Lot is a character, and he spends between pages 42 and 78 describing this character. It's an incredible chapter, um, and what he does is he he, he shows how the, the, the town is a machine, um, and it, made up of all these different gears that interlock with one another and, and just make the, the, you know, the machine, you know, work. Um, and, and it's important because without establishing the town as a living, living character, it's death, which will come by the end of the novel, cannot be effective. So, I mean, in that scene, you know, we, we meet the young farm boy who hates school, the milkman whose knee acts up, the owner of the boarding house who enjoys her morning of solitude, the paper boy who can't throw straight, the abusive teenage mother in over her head who would trade in her life for the one of her high school dreams, the cemetery groundskeeper who would like to finish college, the no-nonsense bus driver, the drunk housekeeper, the schoolyard bully and the new kid who fights back, the hunchback town dump custodian who loves shooting rats, the pervy and corrupt real estate agent, the phone line repair man having an affair with the seductive married beauty queen, the aging solitary high school English teacher who loves his job and thinks rock and roll is fine music, the self-made town selectman who judges a man on the firmness of grip, taste in beer, and appreciates a satisfactory burp, the two brothers who make the unwise decision to walk through the woods at night and pay for it, the overweight widow who lived for town gossip, and the dark figure offering a sacrifice to his master on the stroke of midnight." And with this scene, uh, it concludes this particular chapter at 11.59 p.m. in which the dark figure um, makes a sacrifice to his master. And then from this point forward, this is, this is where the, all the supernatural elements really start to take hold in the town um, and, and, and everything starts to lose control. This is, this is where we start to make the shift into dark territory. So once the town is established, King begins its ruination. When the glick boys go missing, uh, we the reader know that one is dead from the final scene in the cemetery. We don't know exactly what happens to the other. Soon he will show up. But um, but he spent so much time building up this town. He needed to build up this town. And once he does that, he can start to tear it apart. Um, but the town is the body, okay? And if the town is the body, then its streets are the arteries and the veins, and we are the nutrients coursing through those veins. So when the, the characters are poisoned by the vampirism, so is the town until the town itself is turned. Ultimately, Ben has to return to the lot a second time to put a stake through it. He's, he's killed the master, which was the, the, the cause of the infection, um, and he killed a number of the vampires, but um, ultimately the, the, the town itself is now a, a living, breathing town vampire. And, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of the novel, he doesn't just return to, you know, kill the vampires living within it. He has to kill the town itself. Um, and we get another scene um, of the lot as a character later, much like the one that I had just described. Um, but this, this time, King checks in with the townspeople um, as they are either vampires or on the verge of becoming vampires. So we, we get to check in throughout the course of the novel and see the ruination of the town.
Just as I did with Carrie, um, I, I think that it's important to, to check in to see the, the writer's intention and the writer's reasoning for, for writing the book. So I'm just going to read um, about what uh, you know King has to say about Salem's Lot. So the title that, that King originally chose for this book was Second Coming, but he later decided on Jerusalem's Lot. King stated the reason behind that being his wife, novelist Tabitha King, thought the original title sounded too much like a bad sex story. King's publishers then shortened it to the current title, thinking the author's choice sounded too religious. Salem's Lot has been adapted into a television miniseries twice, first in 79, then 2004. It was also adapted by the BBC as a seven-part radio play in 1995. In two separate interviews, King said that of all of his books, Salem's Lot was his favorite. In his June 1983 Playboy interview, the interviewer mentioned that because it was his favorite, King was planning a sequel. But he has more recently said on his web website that since the Dark Tower series already picked up the story in the novels Wolves of the Kala and Song of Susanna, he felt there was no longer a need for one. In 1987, he told Phil Constantin in the Highway Patrolman magazine, In my way is my favorite story, mostly because of what it says about small towns. They are kind of a dying organism right now. This seems sort of down home to me. I have a special cold spot in my heart for it. The book is dedicated to King's daughter Naomi, for Naomi Rachel King promises to keep. While teaching a high school fantasy and science fiction course at Hamden Academy, King was inspired by Dracula, one of the books covered in the class. One night over supper, I wondered aloud what would happen if Dracula came back to the 20th century, to America. He'd probably be run over by a yellow cab on Park Avenue and killed, my wife said. In the introduction to the 2004 audiobook recording that Stephen King read himself. He says it was he who said probably he'd land in New York and be killed by a taxi cab like Margaret Mitchell in Atlanta, and it was his wife who suggested a rural setting for the book. That closed the discussion, but in the following days, my mind kept returning to the idea. It occurred to me that my wife was probably right. If the legendary Count came to New York, that is. If he were to show up in a sleepy little country town, what then? I decided I wanted to find out, so I wrote Salem's Lot, which was entirely, which was originally titled Second Coming. King expands on this thought in his essay for Adeline magazine on becoming a brand name. I began to turn the idea over in my mind, and it began to coalesce into a possible novel. I thought it would make a good one if I could create a fictional town with enough prosaic reality about it to offset the comic book menace of a bunch of vampires. Politics during the time influenced King's writing of the story. The corruption of the government was a significant factor for the inspiration of the story. I wrote Salem's Lot during the period when the Irvin Committee was sitting. It was also the period when we first learned of the Ellsberg break-in, the White House tapes, the connection between Gordon Liddy and the CIA, the news of enemies lists, and other fearful intelligence. During the spring, summer, and fall of 73, it seemed that the federal government had been involved in so much subterfuge and so many government operations that, like the bodies of the faceless wetbacks, Juan Corona was convicted of slaughtering in California. The horror would never end. Every novel is, to some extent, an inadvertent psychological portrait of the novelist, and I think that the unspeakable obscenity in Salem's Lot has to do with my own disillusionment and consequent fear for the future. In a way, it is more closely related to Invasion of the Body Snatchers than it is to Dracula. The fear behind Salem's Lot seems to be that the government has invaded everybody. And I want to take a moment to actually insert um, something that if this is the case, then it's clear that uh, Sheriff Parkins in this novel at the end uh, decides to leave town. And, and King, who has publicly stated that you know uh, his issues with the government helped influence the novel, I think that he's, he's taking those those issues and he's placing them all within this particular character who in another story would be the hero 
of the novel, uh, the small town hero cop, but instead he represents the government um, not servicing those that, 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 um, that he's supposed to. So King first wrote of Jerusalem's Lot in his short story, Jerusalem's Lot, of the same title, penned in college, and published years later for the first time in the anthology collection, Night Shift. In his nonfiction book, Dance Macabre, King recalls a dream he had when he was eight years old. In the dream, he saw the body of a hanged man dangling from the arm of a scaffold on a hill. The corpse bore a sign, Robert Burns, but when the wind caused the corpse to turn in the air, I saw there was my face, rotted and picked by birds, but obviously mine, and then the corpse opened its eyes and looked at me. I woke up screaming, sure that a dead face would be leaning over me in the dark. Sixteen years later, I was able to use that dream as one of the central images in my novel Salem's Lot. I just changed the name of the corpse to Hubie Marston. King's paperback publisher bought the book for $550,000. In a 1969 installment of The Garbage Truck, a column King wrote for the University of Maine, um, King foreshadowed the coming of Salem's Lot by writing, In the early 1800s, a whole sect of Shakers, a rather strange and religious persuasion at best, disappeared from their village, Jeremiah's Lot, in Vermont. The town remains uninhabited to this day. In addition to Dracula, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, the opening passage of which King employed as an epigraph for part one of his novel, and Grace Metalias's Peyton Place are often cited as an inspiration for Salem's Lot. And just as I had done with the, the, the first podcast, I would like to conclude it with the Kingisms that I found in, in the novel. Now, Kingisms are the, the tropes and tricks and uh, patterns that I've spotted that I know are going to pop up again and again in King works. So we have seven Kingisms found within this particular novel. Um, the first of which, number one, okay? The first one we have is the child saving the man uh, prototype. Uh, that that uh, will definitely take hold in the Dark Tower. Now, he has already written the Gunslinger at this time, so the, the Gunslinger itself is a prototype for what we see between Ben and, and Mark. In this novel, we will later say this uh, again with Roland and Jake. Now, the relationship between the duo of the adult and the boy on the quest will be explored more deeply and I don't know if during the Dark Tower saga, if King makes reference to Ben and Mark, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. The relationship intertwines with another Kingism, that of the power of childhood magic. In the face of a threat that life does not prepare an adult for, childhood innocence saves adulthood. Ben is saved through his relationship with Mark, just as the adults of it are saved due to the vestigial remains of their childhood selves. Um, write what you know is an oft-repeated phrase, so it should come as no surprise that Stephen King writes about authors, which comes to our second Stephen Kingism. Um, so we have the protagonist author, um, which will be later seen in The Shining, It, Desperation, The Dark Half, Misery, and Bag of Bones, just to name a few. Number three is our evil house. And this is something that we see over and over again, and I want to make this distinction between the haunted house and the evil house. Stephen King does not write stories of haunted houses. His characters should be that lucky. Instead, his houses are evil creatures, sentient, lurking, preying on those that are foolish enough to enter the front door. 
The Marston house is the first, but not the last, and so enamored was he with the concept of the evil house, he made it the villain of his next book, The Shining. The Overlook Hotel is a villain as memorable as Cujo, Christine, Pennywise, or Randall Flagg. We will see the evil house again on Nybolt Street, in the Wastelands, and in room 1408. Or Stephen Kingism is the unfunny joke. Um, I covered this in Carrie, and the unfunny joke is a joke uh, presented by one of the characters that the other characters find honestly humorous that uh, the reader, myself, uh, does not find humorous at all. Which isn't to say that Stephen King doesn't have humor, but there's just jokes that people laugh at in in his books that I just I don't think are very funny. Uh, the first one comes on page 19 it's when ben and susan meet for the first time and she's uh reading his book and she recognizes that you know that that ben the author is 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 right before her and you know she says oh my god you're you're benjamin mears and then he responds in such a way that people don't talk like this you know people don't 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 use language like this um and and if anyone ever says anything like this to you you have my permission to punch them in the face so he says to her of such inconsequential beginnings dynasties are begun he said and although it was a joking throwaway remark it hung oddly in the air blah 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 then she laughed and offered him the book. No, no. If someone says this, you don't laugh at that. You don't laugh at that. That's not funny. Um, that's obnoxious. And the fact that this is one of the reasons why I don't like Susan is because she falls for him for saying stuff like this. And it makes me like Ben less. Our next unfunny joke takes place on page 23, where the uh, sickening romance of Ben and Susan continues. After he has impressed her with that... Uh, obnoxious remark they are sitting and having milkshakes with one another and they are uh talking about mr spencer um one of the 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 old folks back in town and you know uh ben says to her um oh no she says to him do you remember what he always used to say and this is what king writes ben hunched forward twisted one hand into an arthritic claw and turned one corner of his mouth down in a paralytic twist your bladder he whispered those rut beers will destroy your bladder, bucko. Her laughter peeled upward towards the slowly rotating fan over their heads. Again, to, to me, it's not funny. I get what he's doing. It's a representation of the, the, the little things that make people bond with one another. <clears throat> but the, to me, it's always the person's reaction to the bad joke that gets me more than the bad joke itself that there's more that I forgot um if there are unfunny jokes that I didn't catch um you know the groan worthy uh moments uh please let me know reach out to me at uh stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and I'll share which brings us to number five of our Stephen Kingisms that is that of the charismatic villain so let's face it, Stephen King's villains tend to steal the show. Straker and Barlow definitely fall into this category. Both of these villains are so loquacious, they wouldn't be out of place in a James Bond movie. They're both prone to monologuing and enjoy playing with their opponents, especially Barlow. The charismatic villain will be seen again with the likes of Randall Flagg, the man in black, Martin Broadcloak, Pennywise the Dancing Clown, the TikTok Man, Blaine the Mono, the Crimson King, Atropos, George Stark, Leland Gaunt, Tack, Andre Linoge, and Mr. Munchen, among others, not including the charismatic human villains that populate his work like Margaret White and Big Jim Rennie, Danforth Buster Keaton, and Percy Wetmore. 
uh, our number six Stephen Kingism uh, is 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 a really interesting one because with this novel we can see that King clearly has planted the seeds that will grow into the novel Needful Things. Straker uh, is a prototype for Needful Things antagonists, the devilish or devil himself, Leland Gaunt. Both characters run an antique shop and are prone to making soul exchanging deals with the locals. Straker, in this case, deals with Crockett upon their first meeting, in which the Marston House and business establishment is exchanged for Crockett's own land upon which the up-and-coming businesses will be built. Furthermore, just like Needful Things, the townspeople are seen gathered, this time in Babs Beauty Shop, talking about A, oncoming thunderstorms, and B, the interesting new antique store. This exact scene will be seen again in Needful Things. Number seven of Stephen Kingisms. Um... On page 154, Matt details how the older generations are making the connection between the disappearances of the children in the 30s with the disappearance of the click boy. Um, this particular kingism um, is the cycle of evil, and this will be explored at great depth and will be the running conflict of it um, in which the, the Losers Club has to come back because they understand that the, the, the entity known as Pennywise, a dancing clown, resurfaces every... 28 years, I believe, but um, evil is not something just so easily staked through the heart. It's a, it's an intangible uh, entity that infects time and time and time again. Um, and I said that there were seven, but there's actually eight kingisms, um, and this is the most important one. And I, I think that this sums up who Stephen King is a writer, and that is the strength of community. In Carrie, Stephen King explored the dark qualities of group mentality, but in Salem's Lot, we first see the popular Stephen Kingism of a collection of individuals banding together as a group to combat the supernatural threat. Only when we rely on each other can we overcome the conflict. We will see this again with It, The Stand, Desperation, The Dark Tower Saga, The Talisman, Christine, Eyes of the Dragon, Cell, and Under the Dome. Here in Salem's Lot, it begins with Matt and Ben, then Susan is brought in. Soon after, it's Jimmy Cody, then it's Mark... And, it's a small, and Father Callahan, it's a small collection of people who will stand against the growing threat even when those around them refuse to give in um, and help them and will turn a blind eye or work with the threat. So this is why Stephen King is Stephen King, because he is an optimistic writer. He believes in community. He believes in the goodness of people, and that goodness is enough to stand up against the darkness and the things that go bump in the night. With that, the only thing that we have left is is the uh, the quote of the book. If I could distill the essence of this book into to one quote, what would it be? There's there's a number of of contenders. Um, on page two hundred five, there's a, a small little portion of the text um, talking about the, the the evilness of small towns. It's a quiet evil. It's not a supernatural evil. It's uh, it's just there are town secrets, and some will later be known, and some will never be known. The town keeps them with the ultimate poker face. The town cares for devil's work no more than it cares for God's or man's. It knew darkness, and darkness was enough. Um, I, I really want to point out um, on page 287, there is an incredible scene on the nature of evil between Matt Burke and Father Callahan. Um, I strongly recommend it. I'm not going to read it, but um, I do uh, point it out for everyone to go back and reread because I think that it gives a, a lot of insight on Father Callahan um, and everything that we see in the text itself. 
Um, there is a scene going back to what Stephen King had said earlier about the the, um, the corruption of the government and, and what that means for small towns. That's reflected on page 379 um, when our sheriff turns tail and runs. And he says, Five. That's why he came here. It's dead like him. Has been for 20 years or more. Whole country's going the same way. Me and Nolly went to a drive-in show up in Falmouth a couple weeks ago, and just before they closed her down for the season, I seen more blood and killing in that first western than I seen in years in Korea. Kids was eating popcorn and cheering them on. He gestured vaguely at the town, now lying unnaturally gilded in the broken rays of the westering sun like a dream village. They probably like being vampires, but not me. Nolly'd be in after me tonight. I'm going. But just his, his, his rumination on, on the death of small towns, I, I believe, is an important message that, that King is trying to convey to all of his readers. But the, uh, the scene that I think is the, the most, well, maybe not the most important, but one that definitely spoke to me, maybe because it's, it, it speaks to um, what he will later perfect in it, which will be the central thesis of that particular novel, it's the difference between uh, children and adults, and he, he, he reinforces the, um, the power and magic of childhood and how that can stand up to the face of the supernatural threat. So on page, starts on 232, and it's, it's Mark, Mark's thoughts. So before drifting away entirely, he found himself reflecting, not for the first time, on the peculiarity of adults. They took laxatives, liquor, or sleeping pills to drive away their terrors so that sleep would come, and their terrors were so tame and domestic, the job, the money, what the teacher will think if I can't get Jenny nicer clothes, does my wife still love me, who are my friends? They were pallid compared to the fears every child lies cheek and jowl with in his dark bed, with no one to confess to and hope of perfect understanding but another child. There is no group therapy or psychiatry or community social services for the child who must cope with a thing under the bed or in the cellar every night, the thing which leers and capers and threatens just beyond the point where vision will reach. The same lonely battle must be fought night after night, and the only cure is the eventual ossification of the imaginary faculties, and this is called adulthood. In some shorter, simple mental shorthand, these thoughts pass through his brain. The night before, Matt Burke had faced such a dark thing and had been stricken by a heart seizure brought on by fright. Tonight, Mark Petrie had faced one, and in ten minutes later, lay in the lap of sleep, the plastic cross still grasped loosely in his right hand like a child's rattle. Such is the difference between men and boys. And again, uh, Mark distinguished himself throughout the novel as being the only one um, with the wherewithal to actually combat uh, the supernatural threat. And that's all I have for this week. So stay tuned next week as I review the uh, the, the 1970s TV miniseries of Salem's Lot. Uh, please feel free to uh, reach out with any questions or comments. As I said before, I can't do this alone. I really want to engage in a discussion with everyone, and I would love to have an entire episode where I'm just interacting uh, by answering emails and sharing what, what you have to say. So if you want to reach out, please feel free to do so at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, and I will see you next week. But if, if you happen to be a fan of The Dark Tower, please stay tuned after the, the song that plays us out. 
where I can go into a little bit more detail about some of the events in Salem's Lot and how they pertain to the Dark Tower. Again, if you are not a Dark Tower fan, for all intents and purposes, this is the end of the podcast. So here to play us out, appropriately, I believe, is John Mellencamp's Small Town. Thanks for sticking around, everyone. I hope to see you next week. Okay, everybody, Dark Tower fans, welcome back. Um, I hope that you enjoyed uh, today's podcast, and I hope that you are looking forward to a little bit more discussion around the Dark Tower. So if you've read the Dark Tower, you know that this is not the last that we see of Father Callahan. He shows up again. In fact, if you read the the first uh, of the, the Dark Tower series, The Gunslinger, you'll know that he is in the way station, that he makes it to the way station just as uh, Roland meets up with Jake. And in the re-release, uh, remastered edition of The, the, the Gunslinger, the inside, uh, the inside jacket, um, drawn by Michael Whelan, I believe, uh, shows someone looking through the boards as um, Jake and Roland walk away. And I believe that the person watching them is is Callahan. So um, as, as I discussed earlier in the podcast, I raised the question of whether or not Father Callahan is a stand-in for Stephen King as he begins to wrestle with his dependency issues on alcohol. So if that's the case, and Stephen King understands that... Um, then I, I I believe that uh, it's important that, 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 that Callahan comes back because by the time we see Father Callahan again, he is clean. He's cleaned himself up um, and, and he will redeem himself throughout the course of the last three uh, Dark Tower novels. So is this Stephen King um, at that point having beaten his own inner demons, allowing um, his own avatar to prove to the world that he's the man he always could have been? And you can tell... Now, when he was writing Callahan, King felt strongly about this character. Even after he's tainted by Barlow, King offers a few chapters um, to his newfound cursed existence when many of the other characters once turned are never seen again. Furthermore, he's eulogized by his housekeeper who states that his inherent goodness, um, uh, you know, which to me serves as the question mark <laughs> to movies from the 50s that would conclude with the words, the end, and ellipses, and then the question mark. Uh, it's as if, at that moment, King the writer is King the character from the Dark Tower books, possessed by the force of the tower to keep Callahan's story open because he will be integral to both Roland and the tower's survival. So Father Callahan is definitely one of the, the more important characters in Stephen King's works um, due to the fact that he, he shows up again um, and saves the multiverse, but at the same time, he's also an embodiment of King himself, uh, written at two stages of his life, um, once at, at the beginning of dependency issues and once after he has conquered them um, and redeems himself through the redemption of, of Father Callahan and vice versa. So the question with the, the, the Marston house um, is, is this a door? Is this a doorway? Um, is this a thinny? Um, 
you know, does it lead to the Todash spaces? Uh, there's definitely something about this spot that I alluded to in the in the podcast. You know, I think that there's something about this land. There's something about the land, but what is it? Um, and I, I think that it is it is um, it's one of those those soft spaces between worlds, um, and and I and we definitely see those again. Um, and it just makes me wonder if Salem's Lot is under the path of the beam. If uh, any one of the characters looked up into the sky, would they have seen the clouds moving against the wind currents um, as they headed along the path of the beam? I, I tend to think that the 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 the, um, uh, the fictional towns in King's Universe all all fall under the town of the the, the beam. And if if they are, if it, it if it is under the beam, then my question is, Ben. Was he unknowingly called there by the tower? Um, I believe he was, and I believe that it was Ka that he meets um, Mark, because when the two of them meet, King describes this sensation that hits them both as more than chance coming together, like it was meant to be, and that's on page 300 if you want to check it out. So that fits in perfectly with um, with Destiny, or as, as King calls it, Ka. And on page 385, um, at the end, when Ben is um, trying to get to Barlow, there's a force that possesses him, and it's being described as older than Christianity, and it just fits in perfectly with the description of, of, of Gon and the turtle from the Dark Tower saga. So those are just uh, a couple examples of, of uh, connections to the Dark Tower. You know, as, as you know... Um, you know, Father Callahan is in his redemption. He will encounter the the, the, the granddaddies of the vampires, the the, the pure, um, not 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 the weak ones like Barlow, um, which is so interesting. And he will confront the source of of the evil that plagued him and his town, and he will utterly utterly take them apart um in one of the the most triumphant scenes i have ever experienced reading and i really look forward to to getting there and rereading it again so that's 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 all i have um i i hope you enjoyed it and look forward to to seeing you next week Again, uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments or any Dark Tower connections that you picked up that I might have missed, feel free to, to send me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Until next week, I'll see you all here next week. Uh, same King time, same King channel. Take care.